there, and thank you for joining us on AVM Alliance, a pediatric stroke podcast for families and friends whose lives have been affected by traumatic brain injury, brain vessel disease, or stroke. The purpose of this podcast is to focus on the kid side of brain injury with honest talk, news, information, and discussion for our community. Being a parent of a medically complex child is an extremely difficult path to suddenly find yourself on. I'm Raylene Lewis, and my son Kyler suffered a hemorrhagic stroke at age 15. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to start with a little bit of background history on ischemic stroke before visiting with our guest speaker. Sometimes, blood vessels in the brain get blocked. A pediatric ischemic stroke is a type of stroke that occurs when a blockage, such as a blood clot, reduces or completely stops blood flow to part of the brain. This causes brain cells to be damaged or die, which can cause long-term disabilities. Ischemic strokes are the most common type of pediatric stroke, accounting for about 80% of stroke cases. A perinatal stroke occurs during the time surrounding birth, usually during or right after delivery. It is common for a child who has had a perinatal stroke to have cerebral palsy and other disabilities. Our guest today, Mara Yale, was introduced to the world of pediatric stroke when her second child was diagnosed shortly after their birth. She has made it her mission to share information to help parents achieve the best possible outcome. She is the project coordinator for pediatric stroke and brain injury education at the Massachusetts General Hospital, where she regularly hosts webinar videos with parent guests and medical professionals on topics to assist the pediatric stroke community. With me today is Mara Yale, who now works in multiple ways, including being an author and educator to make it easier for others after pediatric stroke or brain injury. I'm so glad to be here. Absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, Nobody chooses this journey, and that was the case for me. I had uh, my second child was full term large, uh, nine pounds, five ounces. I had hoped for a, a VBAC birth, a vaginal birth after cesarean, but that wasn't meant to be. So I had a cesarean birth, but full term APGAR scores were nines or tens. And at about 48 hours, I was still in the hospital because of the cesarean. I noticed jerky leg movement in my baby's right leg, but I didn't say anything. Uh, But I sent my baby to the hospital nursery so I could get some sleep. And in the middle of the night, the hospital pediatrician came and woke me up at two o'clock in the morning and said, "Um, your baby's having seizure activity and needs to be transferred to a larger hospital. And that was the first that I knew anything was wrong. So I was separated for about 36 hours from my baby. And they ran all all the tests, and including an MRI, and diagnosed the stroke, you know, at two, three days old. Was it a hemorrhagic stroke or an ischemic stroke? It was a, an ischemic stroke, a left um, middle cerebral artery infarction. Um, I, I still remember texting that message to um, to my family members at that time on a flip phone. This was 13 years ago, 13 and a half years ago. Do they know what to, what the cause is when that happens? Most of the time, no. And um, 
they they search. They I think it's more common now to save the placenta. That wasn't possible in my case because the placenta was at one hospital and already discarded by the time the diagnosis came. Um, but that's one place that they're looking now for clues that um, possibly placentas are shedding um, clots that then get into the fetal circulation. Oh, interesting. Well, how's your child now? My child, um, Echo, is thriving. Um, they are 13 years old, uh, non-binary. They are in eighth grade, bilingual in English and Spanish. They play ice hockey and soccer. Wow, that's that's very impressive. So tell me a little bit about your journey. I had a multi-decade hobby interest in a, a modality for working with the nervous system called the Feldenkrais method, and I'd used it to rehabilitate myself. So early on, I was primarily focused with Echo's development in the first three years, first five years, and I was able to bring to bear Feldenkrais through my friends and colleagues in that. Um, the outcomes are pretty variable after this kind of brain injury, and I want to improve the outcomes for everyone. So I've become pretty passionate as an advocate and educator around how to get the best possible outcome after such an injury. What can somebody expect after uh, ischemic stroke You know, with an infant? Do seizures continue, and are you continuing to have to do extensive PT. I know it just must depend on on where the stroke is in the brain, but I've also heard that the younger the child, hopefully the easier it is for them to to recover. Yeah, so when a baby has a stroke, it's pretty different because they're not losing function. They don't have that function yet. Um, so it may show up that the developmental trajectory of their two sides is different. So in Echo's case, um, there was nothing evident uh, in their behavior until about two months old when they were able to start reaching with their left hand, but not really reaching as often or as reliably or as confidently with the right hand. So that was when it first showed up. Seizures um, can be an issue for, for us. We Echo was on phenobarbital for three months after discharge, and then never had um, seizures since. There were, there were a couple, there've been a couple scares over the years where I thought that they were having seizures and we sought medical care. But I actually remember one conversation with a, a neurologist early on, like, what's the likelihood of seizures in this case? And it was slightly increased over the general population. But I convinced myself that I would not worry about it unless something presented itself in front of me. Of course, there are families that um, for whom seizures start at a, a few years or many years into the journey. Well, okay, speaking of starting, how did you start advocating for pediatric stroke? When Echo was in the acute situation, I had a, a caring bridge site, and I would just share updates about what was happening to friends and family. And then when Echo was almost four years old, I wanted to write because I am a writer. It's been part of my core identity. So I I started writing a blog, and I raised, uh, I think, $5,000 and got it matched by my company. And more than the money, the, um, the impact was that people's other parents started writing to me and say, 
saying that's incredible what Echo's doing at, at three and a half years old. How did you get them to this point? Can you help me? Mm-hmm. So that was when the seed of this someday career got got watered a little bit, like that there was something to offer these other families. And you credit her success to the same treatment that you started doing based on the research for when you had your own shoulder injury, right? I was able to take uh, what I learned from understanding how the nervous system works and bring it into real life. So it was a lot of integrating how do you use both hands? How do you get a child on the playground? How do you, as a parent, not be terrified of a child falling on their head who's already had a brain injury, but let them take risks and learn their own capacity? So it's really about creating the conditions for learning and supporting that at every step on the way. And then, yes, Echo also had intensives in Feldenkrais um, with experienced colleagues who work with kids, maybe every several months in the early years. Now, is that what your book is about? I know that you're starting to write. Yeah, I, uh, my book is mostly written. I'm looking for a publisher currently. It is for families affected by early brain injury or other neurodevelopmental challenge who are feeling overwhelmed by by the prospect of this journey that they didn't choose. And my core message to them is that parents create the conditions for optimal development. Well, do you have any core bits of um, advice for us now? Um, I think the first is really to connect with other families like Raylene is supporting in this podcast, like to build community because that's essential. The journey is is a, a lifelong one after a child has any kind of brain injury. And to learn as much as possible. I I also work now part-time for Massachusetts General Hospital, and I lead a, an education and outreach um, program all around pediatric stroke and brain injury. So each case is so different, but there are many things that we can learn from each other. So as I mentioned, I lead this education and outreach series, and we run monthly um, live sessions, which are really important to be live because that also helps build the community aspect. So we always pair a family with an expert speaker. And I I hesitate every time I say the word expert because I try to flip the conventional wisdom and the experts are really most often the the parents or the family members or the child themselves, if they're old enough, we try to introduce voices from young adults through, um, you know, even kids as long, as young as 12 have spoken on our series. I actually love your series. I was looking at it back over the weekend, and I will absolutely include in the description to this podcast uh, the links and YouTube channels. What resources do you recommend people go to that you guys can offer uh, who are dealing with stroke? So, I mean, the the best resources are, of course, your own uh, clinicians. And if you, depending on where you live, it may be worth traveling to a major medical center to get the expertise of a pediatric stroke team, uh, if that's possible for you. Um, Especially if you're in a more remote part of the world or part of the country where you don't have access to a, a neurologist with a specialty in pediatric stroke, I think that it's really essential. Um, and I happen to live near Boston, Massachusetts, and 
We have actually multiple options for pediatric stroke service, but we're followed every year or every two years, depending on sort of what's going on throughout the the lifespan, um, which is really critical. I think it's important as you get a child toward school age that you understand their neuropsychological profile, what might influence how they learn and how they function socially in a school environment. Very good advice. Do you still have your blog? Do you still blog regularly? Um, I'm not actively blogging, but I have two different um, blogs, one from when I first wrote in the early years and one that supports my my private practice now as a Feldenkrais practitioner. So if somebody wanted more information on, uh, like some people have never even heard of Feldenkrais, can you explain that just a little bit more for us? Yeah, so uh, it's based, Moshe Feldenkrais was an Israeli physicist and engineer who injured his knees and rehabilitated himself. And so it's really based on neuroplasticity and how we can um, create movements and little mini lessons that are like how babies learn to do everything, but slow it way down. So in if it's slowed way down, then there's a chance of, of learning in a different way than our habit. And often going slower also can work around like an increase in tone or spasticity that many of these children show. show. That's really, really interesting. Well, is there anything else that you would like to to share today that we haven't kind of gone over um, for the community the listening? Uh, I'm just happy to connect. And I think that more voices supporting families is really what we need. What changes do you hope to see as a result of your efforts? So I, I hope that more of us are connecting and sharing what we know and what we've each learned from our unique journey as well as asking questions of the doctors and therapists to push not just for um, adequate outcomes, but really for optimal outcomes. These children and families deserve to live full and rich lives and not to be limited by um, what therapies therapists allow or insurance companies allow or what schools allow. So I think that the sky's the limit for these children and the the ones best poised to fight for that are often the the parents or caregivers. I could not agree more. I would just add to that one thing that, you know, don't ever give up based on what anybody else says, because in particular, I feel like we are constantly fighting with insurance companies, at least for us, for therapies that are still needed. Keep asking questions. We've been told no several times by insurance companies and said, okay, well then, you know, explain to me what the process is to make it a yes and and keep going. And so far that has resulted in um a lot of time, but it also has resulted in in getting the therapies needed. Yes. And the time is real. Like it's almost like taking on another job. <laughs> it is. Well, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thanks. I'm delighted to um, to be on and to talk with you. 
In chapter 10 of our focus book, Suffer Strong, Jay talks about the need to redefine healing. He points out that the scars you have mean that you have lived, and they are a reminder of the healing process. He shares the truth that scars can lead to a deep communication between fellow sufferers because they are a way for others around you to see and understand what has gone on in your life. All hearts long for healing, he says. With a tattoo, we get to choose the story to tell on our body, but our scars are the story we receive about the life we are still living. It is possible to be experiencing healing and still not feel healed like we thought we would, but we should not overlook a present healing in search of a future wholeness that may not come to be on earth. We all have scars, if nowhere else than on our hearts, and when we reveal our scars to ourselves and to others, they show that we have lived. The least serious of all the scars are the ones that you can see on the outside. Jay says that the most important part of our healing process in dealing with our scars is figuring out exactly what our purpose is, what we are living for. Today's quote is by Demi Lovato. Scars are like battle wounds, beautiful in a way. They show what you've been through and how strong you are for coming out of it. I always like to end our time together with a motivational song recommendation. I don't play the song because of copyright laws, but there have been many times on this journey where a song has really spoken out to me and helped me with my day. Today, I'm recommending you check out All I Know So Far by Pink from her 2021 single, a song she wrote for her daughter encouraging her to remain strong when going through the hardships of life by confronting the sources of her pain and refusing to hide her personal truth even when times get dark and mistakes are made. In the song, she tells her daughter the darkness will come and go, but if she lays down her sword and dives into the pain, then she'll be proud of her skin that is full of scars. And as always, if you have questions, have a topic you would like to hear about, or a great song or motivational quote, don't be shy. Share it in the comments and let us know. And if you liked what you heard today, please go online and rate this podcast. Remember, you're never walking this journey alone. Take care, y'all.